Well, good morning, y'all, and a big thank you to our friend Brad for stepping in today and being with us, being a part of our community. We always uh, really enjoy our guests here at Celebration, and if you've been here the past couple of weeks, we've had several. We had a, our uh, Christian Association of Bikers recently, uh, last week, come in and speak with us, and uh, we got to see all the places and things that this church, is, where it's going, and the things it's doing and it's really exciting to get to be a part of a community like this that is so interested in going and doing and seeking, um, loving and sharing and showing compassion and expanding the kingdom. Um, and if you're wondering where everyone is, that's where a lot of them are. We have several people today on missions. Um, we have several people that are taking some time to go relax. Um, if you're wondering why this furry dude is up here talking to you right now instead of a preacher... Um, sorry. Uh, that's where he is this week. Uh, David Bradford, our senior pastor, who's not right here, but you get what I'm doing, um, has taken his family on a long vacation, which they very much deserve, and will be back in two weeks. Next week, um, our friend Bob, who is, we hide behind the Mac. We try to keep him out from where y'all can see him, but uh, we decide he needs a turn, so next week... We're going to let Bob come and stand in front of y'all. I can't tell if he's laughing or yelling. Um, I'm going to pretend he's laughing. I see big gestures. Um, so next week it'll be Bob. Uh, this week you have to sit through me. And so I'm really excited and also really sorry. But um, either way, if you don't know who I am, I am the youth pastor here at Celebration. My name is Jeremy Hall, and I'm very excited for this opportunity to speak with y'all this morning. Um, so I want to go ahead and jump us into uh, the book of Job, if you throw this up here for me. Uh, we're going to start at the beginning, um, and the book of Job is a great place to, to call the beginning. It's one of the oldest stories that we as a civilization have. Uh, many scholars believe it was one of the first sections of the Bible to be widely circulated. Its oral tradition is various and fascinating. Um, all throughout the ancient Near East and Mediterranean, we see versions of the book of Job. Not Job. I know some of y'all wish we had some jobs to give out today, but it's Job. Um, and in these stories throughout the ancient Near East and Mediterranean, the Middle East, where these stories come from, we see all different versions of the story. Not always with the same names or necessarily the same players, but always a very distinct storyline that's easily recognized as the story we know as the story of Job. And so if we start off at the beginning, Job 1 opens up, in the land of Uz, which is a strange place to name your part of the, the world. I wouldn't choose Uz. Oz, maybe not Uz. Um, but in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. And uh, a yoke is like this big, the, the double horseshoe thing that you hook cattle together with. So he has 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. And he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So the book starts by kind of introducing us to Job. And it says, Job is a good man, but not just a good man. The author is very deliberate here at the end of, of the third verse to tell us that Job is the greatest man 
among all the people of the East. Job is the best man in his entire part of the world. And not only is he a good man, but he's a religiously devout man. He's a man who loves and fears God, who avoids wickedness and, and sin, who, who shuns evil. And he, he lives a life saturated by worship. The text goes on to tell us that he's in constant uh, worship and sacrifice, making offerings to God on behalf of his family and his kids, even when he doesn't know if he has broken a law, even if he doesn't know if he's sinned. He is making sacrifices just in case, because he so desperately wants to be on good terms with God. And Job apparently is on good terms with God, because he is a very wealthy man. He has herds and flocks and cattle, uh, cars, trucks, and boats, a huge estate, think plantation, um, a loving wife, a group of friends, uh, prestige, influence, and a house full of kids. Job is living the good life. But then it all falls apart for Job. In a series of unfortunate events, his, uh, much of his wealth is either stolen or destroyed um, including his home, his homestead, his estate, his legacy, just gone. Um, his, his employees, his servants leave him. He loses his means of production. His cattle have been stolen. His vineyards destroyed. He's lost his ability to continue his business. And, and probably worst of all, in a tragic accident, all of his children die. All seven sons and three daughters, gone. And then Job starts to lose his health. Job is covered in these large developing boils all over his body. And these are large, open, festering soils, soils? sores and blisters. They, they smell and they ooze colorful pus. I, I hear some moans from the, from the audience. But they, they smell and they burn and they itch. And, and Job is just devastated writhing in physical pain from the sores that cover his body and the emotional agony of losing his kids and everything he's worked his life for. It's gone. And we find Job sitting in the rubble of his home that is now the tomb for his children. And he's sitting here with a shard of pottery scraping his skin trying to find any form of relief. And his wife comes to him, and, and she says, What are you doing, Job? Why are you still holding on to your integrity? Because he's sitting here, and he's hoping that something is going, that it's going to change, that it's going to get better. He's still worshiping God. He's still holding on to hope. And she says, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And with that, she leaves him. His wife's gone. These are her parting words to her husband, who is now sitting alone in the ashes of his perfect life. And then Job's friends come, and they sit and talk with him, and they debate, and they discuss, and they, they, they try to decide why this has all happened to Job. And that's, that's a question we ask a lot, isn't it? Why? Why are these things happening? And so they sit and they debate and they discuss 
and they each have theories and ideas and their own answers for why this has happened. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want answers. We want answers. And, and so they propose that maybe, maybe Job has sinned against God and, and doesn't recall it. Maybe he, he's done some sort of grievous sin and not made an offering for it and it just kind of slipped away and he's being punished for that. Or maybe it was one of his kids who sinned. Or possibly Job may have cheated someone in a business deal. Or maybe there's some sort of deep, dark secret, some skeleton in the closet that Job has kept hidden for so long that it's finally all coming back to him. And that's the source of his agony. But Job defends himself. Job is a righteous and upright man. He, he loves God. He fears God and shuns evil. He's in constant worship, making constant sacrifices to stay on good terms with God. And so his friends decide that, well, Job is just beyond reason. And they leave. And Job is left all alone in agony and grief, sitting in ashes, the, the bits that are left over from the perfect life that he built. And Job basically gets fed up with this. And he demands that God give him an answer. He demands that, that God come explain this to him. In Hebrew, the text reads like a lawsuit. Job is demanding his day in court with God. He is calling God out for something that he thinks has uh, been God's fault. God's failing. God missed this one. It slipped through his fingers. God hasn't been doing his job right. He hasn't kept up the end of the bargain. And he wants this day in court with God. And we've heard all of these answers from his friends. The words from his wife are still haunting him. His friends' words are still eating at him. And once everyone has had a chance to speak, then God speaks. But God's reply is not what I think Job was hoping for. And Job 38, we see the words of God as God opens up and starts talking to Job and God speaks, tells us, out of the mouth of a storm. And God says, Who is this who darkens my countenance with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, for I will question you and you will answer me. And for the next five chapters, it's questions from God. God doesn't supply Job any answers. Only more questions. And you see, the, the God that Job was probably hoping for and the God that, that I have hoped for, this is something very personal to me. This is something that, that I've had to deal with and I've had to work through myself. And I think that a lot of us find ourselves hoping for a God that comes and brings answers. We're hoping for the God that, that Job has called out, that Job has demanded his day in court with. And I think the, the best term to refer to this God is we can refer to him as a deus ex machina. Now the term deus ex machina is a theater term that comes from the ancient Greek phrase 
God of the Machine. You see, um, in Greek plays, the deus ex machina um, was usually an actor in some sort of harness with ropes tied onto him who would be lowered into the center of the stage as a God character. When you, you see the fog and the character being lowered in from the ceiling, you realize, oh, this is, this is a divine character, and they're lowered into the stage to resolve the story, to solve a problem. It's, um, it's a really weak way to write yourself out of a plot hole. And many of us have the same notion of God, that when things get rough, when we start to see the world for what it is, when we experience pain, suffering, loss, doubt, that we want God to swoop in and intervene, to fix the problem, to tell us why we've had to experience all this before giving us some good investment advice, don't buy Facebook, and disappear back into the heavens. This is the God that we hope for. This God has a purpose. He has a function. He has a mechanism for us. He has a crutch that makes life easier. And we've probably uh, all seen bad movies where the deus ex machina idea is used to resolve the story, maybe by way of a fairy godmother, maybe the character wins the lottery, um, maybe a main character wakes up and the whole thing has just been a dream. Or uh, it's sort of like when those idiots who write daytime television realize that they have ran their soap opera into a corner and that they have nowhere to go with the story. So they introduce long-lost sister Rita, who knows the family secret. Or they bring in Uncle Frank, who everyone thought had died in, uh, in Vietnam, but actually has been living in Laos for the past 37 years, delivering babies in impoverished tribes, and has now come back to help the family because he knows where the grandfather buried the deed to the ranch. And once the problem is resolved, these characters will simply be removed because they're no longer needed. They were a machine. They were a mechanism. They propelled the story forward. They resolved the problem. They fixed something and now are not needed. And this is, this is often, it's often what we want, isn't it? And it's, it's perfectly, perfectly natural to want these things. We want things to get better. And I've been there with you. And, and it's when we start to realize that the world is not a safe place, that you and I are going to die and be forgotten along with everyone else. And we start to crave at this, the deepest part of what makes us human. You start to crave something eternal that will come along and tell us we're important. Tell us that, that we're a part of something. That all of, all of the suffering we've endured and all of the good that we've done are part of some master plan. And that we have been pointed to that. We, but we, we don't understand suffering. We don't understand why good things, bad things happen to good people or why good things happen to bad people. We don't understand this world and we want something to fix it. And the Bible even joins us in this confusion. In uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2.16, the uh, author laments that, um, that the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. 
Like the fool, the wise too must die. And, and the author will go on uh, later in the same chapter to, to just be shocked and confused and, and frustrated by the fact that the, the righteous man and the wicked man, the godly and the sinner, all come to the end of their life and are put into the dirt and are forgotten. And he hates that. He's confused. It doesn't make any sense. The Bible joins us in a sense of confusion and hurt and ache. Why do things have to be this way? And we want a God that we can lower in out of the sky and then fix things and then ascend back into the sky with smoke and trumpets. This God loves us. And he genuinely cares about us and basically stays out of our way unless we need him. It's a good God. But this God is not real and can neither save nor satisfy. And this is not the God of the Bible. If this is your God, then you have cheapened your reality. The Bible introduces us to a God who has created and saturated this world with himself. It's by his power that all things came into existence. The God of the Bible claims the names of truth, love, justice, and peace. And this God, the God of the Bible, is so connected to these truths, these names, these traits, truth, love, justice, peace, that at the introduction of sin into the world, at the introduction of suffering, when injustice and hatred and violence and, and lie became the reality of this world, this God had a plan to make a way back to truth, love, justice, and peace. This God planned a way for us to come back to Him. He sees the world for what it is. He recognizes its brokenness. His own book, the Bible, is full of acknowledgments and lamentations over the state of, of this world. It says that the earth is broken and groaning. It says that wages of sin is always death. The book of the prophet Haggai is just this one big question. God, why is this happening? This isn't fair. And the book of Ecclesiastes just lingers in this question of if we're going to die then all of this is, and all of this is just dust, then, then what good is anything I've done? It's all meaningless. This God understands and recognizes the horrors of war, the pain of hunger, the plight of the poor, the helplessness of the sick, and the hopelessness of the lonely, and the general deadly condition of the sinfulness of humanity. And he sees and knows the pain in our lives and desires to help us. He does. But unlike the deus ex machina, the God of the machine that many of us would hope for, the fix-it God, this God that swoops in and intervenes before fading into the background of our lives, 
this God, the true God, the God of the Bible, the living God, has entered human history as a man. The God of the Bible has made himself known to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says that the Son is the perfect image of the invisible God. The Son, Jesus, Jesus Christ, is the perfect image of the invisible God. If your God does not look like Jesus, then he isn't real. If your God does not look like Jesus, then he is not the God of the Bible. This God, this God that has made himself known through Jesus Christ, laid down what it meant to be safe, laid down what it meant to be in control, to come into our broken, hurting world and live with us. One of the earliest names for this coming Messiah, who Jesus is, one of the earliest names in the Hebrew prophecy for him is Emmanuel, God with us. God came to earth and wept with us. He recognizes our brokenness because he's experienced this world. He's been here. He's felt this hurt. He's been a part of this broken mess. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you are blessed when you hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. When you see the world and you recognize that this is wrong. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is broken. Evil is winning. What's going on? Something at the deepest part of you says we need to correct this. And even if you don't know how, in that moment, Jesus says you are blessed because God is there with you. God joins you in this hunger and thirsting for a better world. But this God did not simply see our suffering. This God did not spare himself our pain, but rather took it upon himself in the form of a Roman execution stake. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, not only did he experience physical pain and death by the most horrible death that human beings could come up with, but he took the entire weight of humanity's sin on him when he mounted that cross. He experienced all of the evil we have ever done as a species. He took everything wrong that you have ever done and everything wrong and awful and terrible that has ever been done to you. He took that on himself. All the evil that, that we have done as, as a civilization, as cultures, as peoples, all of that evil and all of the good that was left undone, all of that weight was put on Jesus. The entire alienation and brokenness of the human race on the shoulders of one man. And dying on that cross, he took all of that with him to make a way for you to come home to truth, love, justice, peace. All of this so that when you, like Job, find yourself sitting 
in the ashes of a broken life, when you find yourself questioning why things are this way, why, why do bad things happen to good people, why do I suffer like this, why can't this be fixed, why do I have to hurt like this, God is sitting there with you. Jesus came this far so that you would never have to suffer alone. The message of Christ is that we do not. We do not have to go it alone. There is a God who is real and who loves us enough to leave heaven to die for us. While we were still enemies of God, while we were still completely opposed to the ways of God, to truth, justice, love, peace, beauty, all of this, when we were still impure and, and full of hate towards the things that were good, God sent His Son, the person of Jesus Christ, the fullest explanation, the perfect revelation of who God is, to die to make a way for peace. He dealt this so that you would not have to suffer alone in this broken world. But that you would be able to join him in the remaking of this entire cosmos. The, this whole thing, the earth, the universe, everything that God created was affected by our sin. This event that we call the fall changed everything. And through the work of Christ, God is redoing all of it. God is making everything new and through the message of Christ through the gospel you have been invited to be a part of that remaking until the day of Revelation 21.5 when Jesus says I am making everything new and we hear the echoes of the cross it is finished Jesus has invited you into a new life the invitation of Christ is to lay down the sinfulness, the brokenness, the hurt, the, this way of doing things that we have now in exchange for a completely new life. And one of the things that must be laid down is the deus ex machina, the God of the machine. Because the true God, the one true living God, the one who has made himself known through the person of Jesus Christ, this God is not content to be your genie. This God is not content to be your crutch. He is not a machine. He is the master. And he will not be rolled on and off stage at your convenience. This Jesus wants a permanent seat at the center of your life. This is what it means to have a relationship with God, to surrender the brokenness of yourself in exchange for the righteousness of Christ. It's to be made new. Paul says that in Christ I am a new creation, completely new. The old things are gone. As far as the east is from the west, as far as sunrise is from sunset, is my sinfulness from me because of Christ. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus explains that the life that he offers is not necessarily easy or comfortable but that it is life to the full. And that that kind of life, this full life, is the best life there can possibly be. That this is the fullest understanding of reality. This is the greatest way 
of being human there is. If you have not made the decision to, to take on this new kind of reality, if you are still living under the deus ex machina and the weight of your sin, Jesus invites you to lay that down, to put it on the cross and to accept a new life, the kind of life that is full and the kind of life that never stops. Would you pray with me?